So we are going to continue this morning with our series on the big ideas of the Bible. We're going to be talking about the church. As I was preparing for this topic to talk about the church, one morning at breakfast, uh, my kids asked me, what are you preaching about this week? And I said, well, I'm talking about the church. And my eight-year-old daughter, Abigail, said, well, you should definitely sing some church songs. Uh, And we did, so check, right? We're good on that. And then she said, you also should do the rhyme. Now, I said, sure, we can do the rhyme. Some of you know the rhyme that's coming. Uh, Others of you do not know the rhyme that is coming. But we're all going to do this together. And if you don't know it, you're going to learn it. So take your hands and uh, put them together like this, kind of with your fingers down. Now, hold them there for a second. I want to explain something. Um, I cannot make you do this, okay? But I can see if you are or not. And... uh, (laughs) Some of you, I know, you've got kids out in the elementary area or the nursery area, and uh, after church, they're going to ask you what you talked about, and uh, you're going to say, we talked about the church, and the pastor did the church and the steeple rhyme, and uh, you don't want to be one of those parents who has to say, you know what, but I didn't participate, uh, because that's going to reduce your moral authority uh, with the kids, and they will turn to a life of crime. So everybody do this with me. Put your fingers together like this. Here we go. Here is the church. Here is the steeple, right? Open the door and see all the people. Now, when I was a kid, I learned the second half of it like this. Here is the church. Here is the steeple, right? Open the door and where are the people, right? The people are now gone. Uh, It took me many years to realize the people actually are on the roof, right? They're up there. Maybe they're watching fireworks or something like that. I don't know. They've climbed out onto the roof. Now, I have no idea the point of this rhyme. I'm not sure what they're trying to communicate. But that question in the second half of the rhyme that we just did, where are the people, is actually a pretty fair question when we look at the state of the church in the United States and around the world. Uh, Because people tend to be missing. Let me give you just a few statistics. 70% of those in the United States would say, I am a Christian. Right? 50% of the country says, I'm Protestant. 20% of the country would say, I'm a Catholic. So 70% of the country would say, I belong to the body of Christ. I'm a Christian. But what's interesting is, of that 70%, only 20% or less are in church on a regular basis. All right, so that, uh, when you look at the whole country, about 14% of the country shows up to church on any given week when they actually count heads. When you ask people, do you go to church, somewhere around 30% actually says yes. When they count who is there, only about 20% are actually showing up on a regular basis. So what we have is a situation where the majority of those who say, I am a Christian, don't go to church. And uh, the question is why? It's really hard to get good statistics on the answer to why. Uh, Some people are very direct and they say, you know what, I had a bad experience with religion or with the church and I just decided not to go anymore. Uh, Other people are, are less clear, but often the answers fundamentally come down to one thing and that is I am not convinced that going to church or participating in a church really contributes to my walk with God. 
Most people, I think, if they're honest, would say, I don't really see why I need church in order to know God, in order to serve God, in order to understand God. Why would I go to a building and uh, sing songs in public, for example, because that makes me feel uncomfortable to sing out loud? Uh, Why would I go to a building and listen to somebody talk at me when I can sit in the privacy of my own home on my computer and listen to the best speakers in the world without having to get up on Sunday morning and get dressed? So they'd say, what is the value of becoming connected to a church? We're going to talk about that this morning. What is the value of the church as the body of Christ? Now, it seems a little bit odd, perhaps, for me to give a sermon about the value of church to the people who actually are here, right? But I think for those of us who are connected to the body of Christ, it's critical for us to understand why it matters and what this organization is and what it is supposed to do. I think it's critical for us to understand that when we gather as a group of those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, when we gather to worship together, to celebrate communion, to celebrate baptism, to help each other grow, when we gather together, this is an organization that is unlike any other group of people on the face of the earth. And the reason is because the church is the organization that Jesus specifically said that he would build. It's the organization that Jesus specifically said he would protect. It is the organization that Jesus specifically commissioned to go into the world and to share the gospel and to reflect him. So the Holy Spirit is active in the church and among the church in a way that he is not in any other human organization. So that the church, it can properly be said, is the hope of the world through the power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. If you look at Matthew chapter 16, you see uh, this passage in which Jesus was asking his disciples, uh, who do you say that I am? The disciples had said, look, some people say that uh, you are Elijah, some people say you're a prophet, right? All of these different answers. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And you'll remember Peter uh, came with that great confession of faith. You are the Christ, the Son of of the living God, right? And Jesus responded to Peter and he said, blessed are you, Simon, uh, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And he says, you are Peter. Peter is a Greek word that means a rock. And he says, you're Peter. Then he goes on and says, on this rock, that is Peter, on this foundation of the apostolic confession of faith that you just made, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And Jesus says, I will build my church. Jesus loves the church. Jesus has empowered the church to do his will. And living in a world and in a nation like we do, where people are grasping for hope anywhere they can find it, the body of Christ, the church, is an organization that carries and has the opportunity to live out the hope of the resurrected Savior to a world that desperately needs hope of victory over sin, victory over death, and even unity in the face of deep division. 
That is the power of the body of Christ, and that was the power of the church in the first century. And so this morning, we're going to look at the church. We're going to talk about three aspects of the church. First, who it is. Who are the people that compose the church? Secondly, what are the marks of a church? What makes a local church distinct from any other organization? So who is the church? What are the marks of a church? And then thirdly, what does the church do so that we can understand a bit more about this organization that uh, Jesus built, that Jesus says he will protect? So where I want to begin is this question of uh, who is the church? Uh, As you look throughout the New Testament, whenever you see the word church, it's a translation of this Greek word, ekklesia. Uh, The word ekklesia basically is a word used for any assembly or gathering of people who have some common interest. They've got something in common, so they get together to celebrate, talk about, discuss that common interest, or do some common task. Um, As I thought about the word broadly this week, I couldn't help but think about all of the student organizations at Texas A&M. I read that there are over a thousand student organizations at Texas A&M. Aggies are some of the meatinest people on the face of the planet. Uh, They love to create organizations. A few of the more interesting ones are the freestyle underground street dancers. Uh, I don't know what they do, except they dance in some way. There is the Texas A&M Belly Dance Association. A lot of dancing. Uh, There is the Order of Aggie Illusionists. Uh, I love that one, although... um, I suspect the meetings are invisible. It's probably hard to get to them. The uh, Texas A&M Mountain Sports, for all of the mountains around here, in case you want to climb them. Uh, The A&M Quidditch team, uh, for those Harry Potter fans who love imaginary sports. Right. So there's a club for every single interest. Uh, In a broad sense, those are ecclesias. Those are gatherings uh, around a common purpose. Now, as you look throughout the New Testament, you will see that word ecclesia primarily used to refer to the gathering of those who trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. So it is the group of those who are the people of God. Uh, In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word ecclesia is sometimes used for the nation of Israel, that it is God's congregation or his people. In the New Testament, it refers to the church. Now, the church is a word that is a bit flexible, uh, and it's used in two primary senses. There is the universal church. That would be what we might call church with a uppercase C, a big C. And then there is the local church or church with a little C. So our church here, Grace Bible Church Creekside, is a local expression of the universal church. The universal church includes everybody from every era, every country, every race, every economic status, everybody who has ever trusted in Jesus Christ for eternal life. That is the universal church. As you look throughout the New Testament, you'll see discussion at times of this universal church. Uh, For example, in the book of Colossians, and he, that is Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. When the universal church is discussed in the New Testament, one of the primary things that uh, the authors of the New Testament talk about is that Jesus is in charge of it. Uh, Jesus is the leader of the church. So look again at Ephesians, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head 
over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Jesus is the one who rules over the church. Every local church is, a, is a, an expression of the larger body of Christ over which Jesus is king. Uh, because the universal church includes everybody who has trusted in Jesus, the universal church is diverse but unified. It is a diverse group of people who are unified under Jesus Christ. So that in the book of Galatians, Paul says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to camp on this point for just a minute. It's diverse but unified. The early uh, first century culture in which the church of Jesus Christ was born was filled with ethnic tension and racial division and socioeconomic division and division between even male and female. So you had had, uh, distinctions between Jew and Greek. Jew and Greek did not associate with one another. Uh, You had distinctions even amongst the Gentiles, Greek and Roman. You had distinctions amongst the Jews. There were Greek-speaking Jews and there were Hebrew-speaking Jews. And those two groups of people did not get along. You had a huge economic distinction between free and slave. Right? You had a distinction in, in the Jewish community in particular between male and female. And so if you think that our culture is unique in the racial and ethnic and economic divisions that plague our world. When you go back to the first century world, you'll see that our culture is nothing new. And yet what's remarkable about the church is it became the place where the Spirit of God united people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation together to worship Jesus Christ. What the Holy Spirit did is built a community under Jesus that could not be built in any other way so that the church of Jesus Christ is the one place in the world where there ought not to exist the racial and economic and ethnic divisions that plague the rest of our world. But instead, the church of Jesus Christ ought to be a place that models the unity of God's people in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as I read what the early church became, I think what power there is in a gospel of a risen Savior who through his strength can draw together people who otherwise truly did not get along. That's the power of the church. You know, in our broader culture and even here in Bryan College Station, certainly we experience uh, some of the economic and racial tension that plagues our world. Uh, Here, even inside of this church, I think one of the divisions that has plagued us from time to time is not uh, racial, but actually it's based on age. We have college students versus grown-ups, right? Any of you who have been over to, uh, for example, even our Anderson campus traditionally, which is our our first campus that was uh, built, you know that there are students and there are grown-ups. And every year, this time of year, in fact, I, I do it too. I was talking to people this morning. You drive around town and you say, why are these students on my roads? Why are they taking up my parking places? I come into church and suddenly it's full and they're taking up my seats. And there's this this tension between young and and old and and it can even create sort of a class barrier if we're not careful. And it goes both ways. Uh, Many years ago when I was 
uh, serving this church as the college pastor, I went to a meeting on campus with a few college pastors from uh, different uh, ministries, and then also some students who were leaders in Christian organizations on campus. And the thing we were talking about, these college pastors and these students, was why is it that so many students are not participating in the local church? Why is it they are only participating in their student organizations? Right, and I'll never forget, uh, one of the students said, well, maybe the issue is that uh, when we come to these student organizations, we see students who are singing loud and they're passionate and they're on fire for Jesus and they've got all this energy. And then we go to church and we sit behind a middle-aged, balding man who doesn't seem that enthusiastic about Jesus and we wonder if there's life there. And I will never forget uh, one of my coworkers, Blake Jennings, who now serves our Southwood campus. He looked at that student and he said, for all you know, that little balding man is a spiritual hero. But you haven't taken the time to connect with him in the body of Christ, to know his struggles, to know his passions, to know his joys, to know who he is in his walk with the Lord. Now that was over a decade ago. So those students are now becoming that little bald man in church. But as you look at the first century church, what we see is that the Spirit of God had the power to bring together people who otherwise would not sit in the same room to worship Jesus Christ because the gospel triumphed over even those deep divisions in their world. That is the hope of the church, and that is who we are. We are those who trust in Jesus Christ, diverse but unified. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, there is one body, And one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We worship in the name of Jesus Christ and the power of one spirit. That's the body of Christ. That's who we are. Now, secondly, then, now that we understand who is the church, the question is this, what marks a church? So if the church is the group of all those everywhere who have trusted in Jesus Christ, how do we know if what we are doing is a legitimate expression of the universal church? What distinguishes a church from any other organization on the planet? Because there are groups that might look like a church in some ways, but they aren't. Or there might even be groups that act like a church and want to be thought of as a church, but are are not. Uh, As I was thinking about that concept, I couldn't help but remember several years ago uh, when my son was, I don't know, three or four, uh, he dressed up like a doctor. And uh, he, you can see, has the lab coat and he's got a stethoscope. And uh, in some ways, superficially at least, he looks like a physician, right? But the reality is, if he walked into uh, your examining room and offered to, I don't know, do an organ transplant or open heart surgery, you might question his credentials, right? Because as you look, initially, yeah, there's some superficial things that add up, but then other things don't add up, right? He's very short. Um, His stethoscope is plastic with a little heart on it. He's holding a blanket, right? So there may be some things that you go... Maybe this isn't an actual doctor. Some things add up. uh, Some things do not add up. Well, in the same way with the church, uh, there are perhaps organizations that on the surface appear to be a church, but when you dig a little bit deeper, they are not. Some of those organizations might actually be heretical cults, right? 
others of those organizations, they may be Christian organizations, and they're not bad. In fact, they're doing great work alongside the church. That's what we would call a parachurch, right? And we have great relationships with a number of parachurches, and they fulfill some great functions. But the question is, what distinguishes a local church from any other organization? I'm going to offer just a few thoughts this morning. The first thing that marks a church is orthodox doctrine. Orthodox doctrine. By orthodox doctrine, here's what I mean. Uh, That there are certain things, certain beliefs that every church must have in order to be considered a legitimate church in the historical Christian faith. Uh, When Paul was writing to Titus, as Titus was serving as a young pastor, he says, Titus, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. All right, every church is called to teach what we would call orthodox or correct doctrine that adheres to the historical Christian faith. Now, I want to be clear. Uh, There are some points of doctrine that our church, for example, holds to that not every Christian church holds. So we happen to be, as a local congregation, a church that is dispensational and premillennial in our eschatology. Even if you don't know what any of those words mean, uh, those are not uh, things that every church everywhere must hold to. Those are theological uh, distinctives of Grace Bible Church. But there are other points of doctrine that everybody who says, I am a Christian church, needs to adhere to. And if they don't, they are outside the stream of the historic Christian faith. That would make them uh, heretical. That would make them a cult. One of the easiest ways to figure out what fits is to go back to the early creeds of the early church, like the Apostles' Creed, and read the Apostles' Creed and say, if somebody denies things that are in that creed, then they're outside the historic Christian faith. Because Pretty much every church that is a Christian church affirms the things in the Apostles' Creed. I'm actually going to give a few points of doctrine that I think are central to the Christian faith that every legitimate church needs to adhere to. All right, just a few this morning. First of all, the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture. We are a church, for example, that uh, we use the word inerrancy. That means that we believe that the Word of God is without error in the original manuscripts, and it is inspired by God, and it is authoritative. As you go around the world, different churches will use different words. They may not all use the word inerrancy, but what I'm getting at with this point is that every church that is a legitimate church says that the Word of God is our authority for what we believe about Jesus and what we do, that we stand under the word of God and not above the word of God. So the authority of scripture, uh, the triune God as creator and redeemer of the world. That is, every Christian church must affirm the Trinity. This is why organizations like the Mormon church or the Jehovah's Witnesses do not fit within the historic Christian faith because they deny the Trinity. They deny that there is one God in Three persons, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all fully God, but distinct persons that are God. We talked about the Trinity earlier in the summer, that that God created the world, that that God redeemed the world from sin and death through Jesus Christ, through the power of the Spirit. Every Christian church believes in the triune God as creator 
and Redeemer. The fall and original sin. A church that denies original sin, that says you and I are capable of earning our salvation. Uh, That is a doctrine called Pelagianism, which was uh, declared to be a heresy way back in the fourth century of the church. The fall and original sin. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. There we go. Salvation by grace through faith, that you are saved by the grace of God by believing in Jesus Christ and then the second coming of Christ. We may disagree on the details of when that's going to happen, how that's going to happen, but Christian churches believe in the return of Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom. All right, so every church holds to what we would call orthodox doctrine, that what you believe about God really does matter. It's not sufficient simply to gather in a room and sing similar songs or say similar things if we deny things that every Christian church needs to believe. All right, so orthodox doctrine marks a local church. Secondly, organized leadership. Uh, Every local church has an organized leadership structure. Uh, In the first century church, we can make a pretty good case that that leadership structure consisted of a plurality of, of elders. Every local church uh, had elders that were designated, and these were men who would shepherd and govern that congregation to make sure that they taught what was correct and stayed on task. So as you look at Paul's instructions to Timothy regarding elders, he says, the reason I left you, Timothy, in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Now, why is there a plurality of elders? Why, are there, why is there more than one? Uh, the reason is because we do not believe that any one human being is equipped or qualified to make all the decisions for the church. Uh, Every person, no matter how uh, great he may be, is sinful and flawed and prone to pride and prone to a thirst for power. So we have a plurality of elders so that no one person grabs the reins unless that one person is named Jesus. So uh, here at Grace Bible Church, what do our elders do? Our elders actually kind of think of them like the uh, bumpers on a bowling alley. I know most of you uh, probably don't use those bumpers, right? But maybe if you're having a bad day and the ball keeps going in the gutter, uh, you turn those bumpers on or maybe with your kids. What do they do? As the ball goes to the left or goes to the right, they keep it within the boundaries. That's a huge part of what the elders do to say within these boundaries, here is what we're going to teach about Jesus. Within these boundaries, here's going to be the mission of our church. And for us as a Grace Bible Church, the distinctive vision of this church to be a university family church where students and adults worship together. All right, so our elders help keep us within the lines as they govern. So there's this organized leadership structure. There were also what are called deacons 
in the early church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Deacon is a word that fundamentally means one who ministers or serves. You see the deacons involved in how to distribute offerings of money and food to widows who need it. You see deacons involved in uh, the physical needs of the church. They were men who served in that capacity uh, with the church. So a church has this organized leadership structure. It's not one person calling all the shots. In the early church, the elders were appointed by the apostles. We don't have any apostles around. So as a congregation, we actually elect our elders. They serve four-year terms typically, and then uh, they are either reelected or they step off of the board. Right, so uh, the elders and the deacons are the leadership structure for the body of Christ to make sure that we teach and adhere to what the church is about. So you have orthodox doctrine, you have organized leadership, and then thirdly, we have the ordinance of, of the Christian faith, uh, meaning baptism and communion. Uh, we celebrated communion this morning, and remember we talked about how communion is uh, this symbol, this visible symbol that we as a body of Christ all believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. We remember his death as a group of people, an ecclesia, gathered together under Jesus Christ because of what Jesus has done for us. Baptism, traditionally and historically, has been the initiation into the visible body of Christ. We don't believe that baptism uh, is necessary for you to go to heaven, but baptism is an entrance into membership in the visible local body of Christ to say publicly, I believe in Jesus Christ and I'm going to join this community of believers in worshiping and serving and praising and proclaiming Jesus. Sometimes we get asked, why is baptism necessary for membership at Grace Bible Church? It's necessary for membership at Grace Bible Church, not because you go to heaven based on baptism, but because historically baptism was the initiation into the local body of believers. That's what they would do if somebody wanted to join a church because it is a public statement that I have trusted in Jesus Christ and I'm committing myself to this body of believers to be accountable to this group of people and to serve and worship alongside them. So a local church has an organized leadership structure of authority and accountability and then celebrates these ordinances and teaches orthodox doctrine. A few years ago, I read an article by a well-known Christian author And uh, the title of the article was something along the lines of, I don't connect with God through singing. And uh, the whole point of the article was uh, why he doesn't go to church. And he said, look, I don't go to church because I don't really feel like singing together with other people. And there's nothing the church does that I can't really do uh, at home or with a few buddies in nature or wherever it may be. And uh, my response to that is, yeah, walking out in nature is a great way to uh, see God's work and to worship God. Hanging out with your friends is a great way to see the work of God in their lives. But none of those replace the local church. And these marks of the local church from Scripture, I think, make that case. That nowhere else is there the structure and the ordinances and the ability to do what the body of Christ does. That the Holy Spirit, I think, works in a unique way through the church. So that I believe every believer ought to be connected to a local church. Again, because it's the organization Jesus built, Jesus says he'll protect, and that Jesus has commissioned. 
In the book of Hebrews, the author says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. We are called to continue to meet together, to remember Jesus' death, and also to sit together in a room like this and know one another, know our struggles, know our joys, know our fears, and challenge each other to grow as we worship together. And the Spirit of God is present among us when we gather for that purpose. So we've looked at who is a church. We've looked at what marks a church. Lastly, uh, what does the church do? What is it that we as a body of believers are called to do? Uh, First of all, we are called to worship. We get together every Sunday morning to worship Jesus Christ. Uh, Historically, do you know why the Christian church gets together on Sunday? Many of you do. We get together on Sunday, not on Saturday, because the early church said Sunday is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And so we get together to worship every Sunday morning that Jesus rose from the dead, and we sing songs together. Look at Colossians chapter 3. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but uh, church may be the only place where you gather together with other people and sing out loud. Actually, let me take that back. There's one other place you do that. Aggie football games, right? You get together in a giant arena with thousands, tens of thousands of people, and you sing out loud songs of praise to your alma mater. Why do we do that? What happens to you when you sing that fight song? You feel the pride, don't you? You feel something emotionally that you might not otherwise feel if you weren't singing that song. And we lock arms and we do something with our legs, right? And we sway back and forth and we sing this song in sort of a mass ritual incantation because we feel that pride and it fires us up to cheer for our team. Why do we sing when we walk into church? Because there is something that music does to our spirits and our emotions that doesn't happen quite the same way when we just talk. And so from the very earliest days, the church has gathered to sing songs of praise. We also sing because songs help us remember truth. Uh, Many of you will go home and by tomorrow, uh, you will forget what I said. And that's okay. It doesn't hurt my feelings a lot, right? You will forget the things I said, but you will remember many of the songs that we sang this morning. They will get stuck in your head, right? How many times have you had a song stuck in your head that you didn't even want there? Uh, There's a song from when I was a kid about Tootsie Rolls that has been stuck in my head for about 35 years, right? Everything I think I see becomes a Tootsie Roll to me. Some of of you will remember that. Uh, Some of you remember even in this town, the old uh, Double Dave's song, they may still use it, right? Let's go to Double Dave's, Double Dave's, right? They've got the pizza with the real great taste. It puts a smile on your face. Every time you drive by, you think of it, right? It does put a smile on my face. It does have a really great taste, right? And it gets in your head. You remember it in a unique way because it's put to music. We sing truth about who God is and what Jesus has done together as a body of believers. And we hear the voices next to us praising Jesus Christ 
and we remember who he is. And then we come back together next Sunday and we do it again to remind ourselves who he is and what he's done. And throughout the week, those songs, they get locked into our minds so that we continue to worship him on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, until we gather again to worship him. So we gather together to worship. Secondly, as a church, we gather together to grow. We gather together to grow. When we hear the word of God proclaimed, we begin to understand it in a deeper way. All of us perhaps have had the experience of hearing the same passage read for the 10th, 20th, 30th time, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit does something in our heart and it clicks for us in a way that it didn't the first two or three dozen times we heard it. So we gather together to hear the word of God so we can grow. Uh, The seminary that I attended, Dallas Seminary, has a sign out front that has the Greek phrase, uh, when you translate it, preach the word from the book of 2 Timothy. Preach the word in and out of season at all times, every week, all the time. We come before the word of God because, again, we recognize the word of God as the authority for what we believe and what we do, and we grow. We also grow as we serve and use our gifts. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Everybody who knows Jesus Christ in this room has the opportunity to bring the gifts the Spirit has given you and to serve God's people. And as we serve together, I see things in your life that I need to work on, areas in which I need to grow. You may be a fantastic servant. You may have a a gift of service. Or somebody else may have a gift of teaching or of leadership. And as we uh, engage with one another, we grow as well. Not simply by listening or singing together, but by seeing the lives of those gathered around us in service. We learn when we serve in new ways. We learn about how to walk more closely with Jesus Christ in areas where we are weak. A few years ago, uh, I had the opportunity to teach a little chapel message for our preschool over at Anderson, our three, four-year-olds in preschool. And, And I learned a great deal about myself by teaching three and four-year-olds. I learned about teaching, right? I learned never ask a group of toddlers a rhetorical question, for example, because they will all answer individually. We learn about ourselves. We learn about our Savior. We learn about the Spirit of God moving among us. When we use our gifts to serve in the body of Christ, to teach, to lead, to help others grow in the body of Christ. So we gather together to worship. We gather together so that we can grow. And then thirdly, we gather together and go out so we can multiply. So that we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. We understand the gospel in a deeper way. And then we go out from here into our neighborhoods, into our places of business, into our families, and we share the good news so that men and women hear the good news of Jesus Christ and trust in him. I mentioned earlier, Jesus not only built the church and protects the church, but he commissioned the church. Matthew 
chapter 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We are commissioned for a task to preach the good news. I believe that the church of Jesus Christ contains the hope of the gospel and the hope of the world. A few weeks ago, in the midst of all of the the racial tension and chaos that was bubbling up in our country, I read an article uh, by Tony Evans, pastor in Dallas. He said, The presence of God's people in public is desperately needed right now for the good of the church and the good of society, which we are called to serve. What is he saying? In the middle of a culture and a world that seems to be coming apart at the seams, there is great power in a body of Christ that gathers together to remember the power of Jesus Christ and the power of his spirit and then to go out and proclaim it in our world that is divided to say there is a gospel that unifies, there is a gospel that overcomes death, there is a gospel that overcomes sin and we gather together to sing about it, to learn about it and then to proclaim it. That is the power of the body of Christ. In a moment we're going to hear a testimony from one man whose, whose life was transformed by interaction with the body of Christ. Uh, before we do, let me just ask a few questions by way of application. First of all, do you know Jesus? Are you a member of his people? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness of your sin and eternal life? Because Jesus died to take the penalty for all of your disobedience and all of your sin, and he rose again so that all who believe in Jesus need never fear death because we have eternal life. Do you know Jesus? Are you connected to the body of Christ in a meaningful way, serving, using your gifts, growing with the body of Christ? Are you growing in your faith? Are you making disciples? One area of uh, growth and service that we want to emphasize this morning is uh, what we call our care ministries. As you seek to grow in your walk with Jesus Christ, you may find that there are areas of your life in which you need extra help from the people of God. Maybe, maybe you're grieving and you need people who can uh, help you process that grief. Maybe you're struggling with some sort of sin or addiction issue and there are people who can gather around you and help you uh, deal with those issues well so that you can be an effective disciple and disciple maker. Maybe you just need people to pray for you. There are a variety of those types of ministries on our website, and you can see the web address here. We also have an opportunity uh, this fall for those who may want to help serve by by helping people uh, with uh, initial kind of emotional, spiritual issues that they may need help with. We're calling it our uh, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand. That's the name of the curriculum. You can get together this fall at Creekside also, and we'll have more details and learn how to serve and counsel your fellow believers in that regard. So this morning as we close uh, talking about the body of Christ, uh, we thought it would be appropriate for us to hear from one man, Matthew Wolford, who's going to talk about his own journey of how the the, the, uh, word of God and the body of Christ and the people of God helped shape him and transform him to walk more closely with Jesus Christ. So Matthew, come on up. Howdy. This is the fifth time I've done this this summer, so you'd think it'd be easier. It's not. My name is Matthew Uh, I am a believer in Jesus that struggles with alcoholism and cocaine addiction uh, and anger. I grew up in a loving Christian home uh, with two parents, a a sister and a dog. My dad has been a preacher for my entire life. 
In fact, my mom went into labor with me during one of his Sunday morning sermons. Um, I've literally been in, uh, interrupting church my whole life also. But you could say that I grew up in church. I gave my life to Christ on July 5th of 1993. And being a preacher's son, I was often called upon to lead singing or to read scripture or for some other visual reference point, I'd hear the word Matthew and be like, is he talking Bible or me? Um, what's, what's happening here? And one time, even at a camp in Terre Haute, Indiana, my dad um, took some flash paper. I don't know if you know what flash paper is. It's like a magician's tool that's very flammable, leaves no ash, no residue, and just it's like a little fireball. Uh, he put a bunch of that on my shirt and then lit it on fire. I don't really remember the point that he was trying to make during that sermon. <laughs> I know it was pretty cool, and I know that my mom was not with us to object. My point is is that I was given a really solid Christian upbringing. Uh, We read the Bible together regularly. I was at church three times a week, minimum. Uh, And yet with all that going on, I fell really into deep sin. Um, See, I drank for the first time when I was 15. I got blackout drunk for the first time a couple of days after my 16th birthday. That's quick. And that really just became a reoccurring theme in my life. Um, my low self-esteem and desire for approval found me drinking more and more throughout high school. See, it wasn't enough for me to just drink with my friends. I had to be the best at it. By the time I graduated from Bryan High, I was drinking to excess almost daily. I was still active in church. Excuse me, I've been battling something for a couple weeks. I was still active in church at that time, but I was really trying my best to kind of hide who I was and the pain and, and things that I was feeling. Uh, The church was kind of the place to wear a mask, not to be authentic. Um, This continued for a really long time, and about a month after my 21st birthday, I tried cocaine for the first time. It terrified me, and I told myself I would never touch it again. I was wrong. One of the things that I've learned about sin is that it tends to lead to more sin. And so one night a couple of years later, after a few drinks, I tried it again. And this time it was as if I had found my reason to live. From that point on, I began to add cocaine to my drinking routine, and within a couple of months of that, I was completely out of control. One night, I was involved in a single vehicle accident that I have zero memory of. Fortunately, I was not hurt, uh, but it was a wake-up call, and so I came clean to my parents about my drinking and cocaine use and asked for help. My parents had no idea what to do with that information, Um, so we made an appointment with my doctor, and he suggested that I go into an inpatient treatment hospital. So a few days later, I took off for the Hill Country uh, in Hunt, Texas, uh, for 30 days. They didn't tell me this before I got there, but it is actually a Class three mental institution. Um, They like to surprise that once you're already signed up and in. Um, They don't tell you you're going there prior to. So I was there for about 30 days. Uh, And while I was there, I was introduced to the 12 Steps of Recovery for the first time. They had these giant posters with them on the wall. And I remember reading those steps that very first day and thinking something said, this is all about God, I know all about him, this will be easy. It wasn't, uh, just spoilers. After I got home from treatment, I began to work the program of recovery, but I never really gave myself to it fully. And after about six months, I was sober, but I decided that I no longer needed to go to meetings, I didn't need to be held accountable, and I didn't need that community that I had formed. So I struck out on my own to do my own thing. Around this time, the church my dad preaches was in need of a new youth minister, And so, naturally, I applied for the job. While I was not hired in a permanent role, I was hired to an interim role. And so, um, the church was aware of my struggles, and, like me, believed that those struggles were behind me. With this new role, I flourished. I was not doing anything intentional to maintain my sobriety, but I was able to stay sober during that time. 
that ended quickly, though, because when a permanent youth minister was hired uh, and I was no longer needed, I began to resent the church. They had not properly thanked me for all of my hard work with our youth group for those eight months. I was angry and kept it bottled up. I had no outlet for it. And two two weeks later, I was drunk again. And this is really where cocaine took over my life. It was much easier to hide cocaine use from my family and girlfriend or employee, employers, whoever, um, than it was to hide drinking. Drunk Matthew is really easy to spot. He kind of sticks out. So I began to use cocaine pretty much exclusively. I didn't know what to do with the pain and anger I was feeling, but the drugs took that pain and took those feelings away. But now I needed to feed that monster. I mentioned earlier how sin leads to more sin. This was certainly true at this time of my life. Pretty soon, all I cared about was cocaine and how I could get more of it. I spent every penny I could get my hands on, and when that wasn't enough, I began to steal things exclusively from my parents, um, whether that was un- money, electronics, tools, really anything that I could turn into cash uh, to feed my addiction. This went on for several months, and eventually everything kind of came out, and it was very messy, um, probably the hardest strain my parents' marriage has ever had. It was not it was not pretty, um, but change needed to happen. And so I started back into recovery, but again, my heart really wasn't in it. Uh, over the next couple of years, I was very back and forth. Um, there was a lot of good, and there was a lot of really bad. Um, during that time, I did manage to meet a beautiful woman um, and fell in love, and we got married in December of 2012. She'd been living in the Dallas-Fort Worth area <clears throat> for our entire relationship, moved here so we could start our married lives together. Unfortunately, I was living a lie. I was working 12 hours a day, six days a week, to support my nearly $1,000 a week cocaine habit when we said I do, and she had no idea. Our marriage started off poorly, as you can imagine, as I was not able to contribute financially or emotionally. When she realized what was happening, she made it clear that things needed to change, and I tried to quit, and I promised her that I would quit. And every time I made that promise, I meant it. And every time I made that promise, I broke it. I could not stay sober for more than three weeks. It was like clockwork. 21 days is all I had in me. And that was the first eight months of my marriage. On July the 23rd of 2013, the urging of my counselor and my wife, I walked through the doors of Celebrate Recovery at Grace Bible Church for the first time. I was nervous, angry, resentful, and hopeless. But I have been sober since that day. When I got to CR, I was willing to do anything, and so I did everything that was told or asked of me. One of the focal points of recovery is confession and accountability. In step four, we make a moral inventory of ourselves. In step five, excuse me, we confess we confess our faults to ourselves, to God, and to someone we trust. Step six, we became willing to have God remove our defects of character, and in step seven, we humbly ask Him to remove those character defects. Essentially, that means that we admit our wrongs and our poor choices to each other. We look for reoccurring patterns, and we seek God's help in ridding our lives of that sin. This is an ongoing and ever-evolving process. As as I've dealt with one sin, I've found other things propping up that need to be worked on. Uh, The key to this process being effective, though, is rigorous honesty. See, I had to realize that we are not identified by our sin. We are identified by who we are in Christ. And with that in common, the sin or the issue or the hurt, habit, or hang-up that we like to call them no longer has its power. Our power comes from, through Christ and from meaningful connections with other sinners just like me. See, we have a phrase at CR that you are only as sick as your secrets. Transparency takes that sickness away. In fact, James 5.16 says this, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. 
The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. See, I grew up in church. I spent a lot of time reading the Bible and trying to live out my faith accordingly, but I never really understood what this verse meant until I got to celebrate recovery and actually tried it. It's amazing to see how much healing I've seen in my life as a result of living this way. This is a lesson that I still have to work on, though, especially with my wife. I still find myself defaulting to, defaulting to dishonesty and sneakiness. I don't know if that's an actual word, but I'm using it. Um, some of the old behaviors and that kind of the thrill of getting away with something still pops up in me sometimes. And so that's something that I have to work on still. See, I'm not perfect. I still struggle daily. But I, know, I now have a plan of action to overcome those struggles. I'll leave you with this verse that I use as my mission statement for life. This is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. It says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Thank you. power of God's spirit working through God's people in the body of Christ. Why don't we close with a word of prayer? Father, thank you. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity to gather here this morning to worship, to grow closer to you, uh, Father, and to go out from here to share the good news. Father, I thank you for Matthew's story and how apparent it is uh, how you really have been working in his life all along. Thank you for Um, drawing him toward Celebrate Recovery and the healing ministry there. Father, I know there are others in this room that it may not be the same types of addictions, but there are struggles and sins, things that seem to dominate their minds and hearts. Father, we know that you are a God of healing and freedom, and so we pray that you would draw all of us, Father, to a place of spiritual, emotional, physical health, and a close walk with you again. Father, I pray that we would avail ourselves of those around us in this room and at Grace Bible Church and in the body of Christ to grow. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.